The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Greetings, mutant geeks, and welcome to an exciting special edition of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Wondering if adamantium tinsel has been recalled by a government safety commission, and that's why we don't see it around these days. I'm Adam. And realizing the Dazzler could create one heck of a Christmas light show display at her house, I'm Michael. Come all ye merry mutants and gather around the fireplace of the X-Mansion as we hang the yellow and blue spandex with care in hopes that St. Xavier soon will be there. It's Xmas time, after all, so we've called in a few experts to help us celebrate the 30th anniversary of the X-Men like it's 1993. And we promise that's the end of the X-Puds. Or is it? Knowing you is probably not. (laughs) (laughs) Coming home for the holidays is our first guest ever on the podcast, a man who boasts the mutant power of retro recall, which allows him to accurately pull up pop culture and comics minutia at will. It's Jeff. Hey, guys. Welcome back. Yeah. And also making his second appearance on the podcast, boasting a mutant power even cooler than Cypher's ability to decode or translate anything, because he can research years of comics history in the blink of an eye. It's Chris Sheehan. How you doing, Chris? Hey, hey, how are you? Thanks for having me back. I was afraid after last time I might have talked too much, and uh, I'm, I'm happy that uh, I'm happy I was invited back. It really meant a lot to, to get the invite. Let's put it this way, Chris. Your ability to talk with Adam gave me the chance to relax that evening. It was there very nice go. for me. <laughs> That's my secondary this, mutation. There you go. This is the first time we've had two guests on. Is that right, Adam? Yeah. After episode 25, we're just breaking through all the walls. Oh, yeah. But what we're talking about this time around, for those who don't know, this is not part of the standard wish you... Wish you? The wishes, you know. No, this is part of the standard wizard issues. This is a collector's edition magazine, X-Men Turn 30, it tells us. Wizard with a holographic logo. Yes, this is a special edition where they are selling in 1993 the big 3-0 for Marvel's mutants who have made them many millions and so there are a lot of articles here obviously pertaining to the history and some other tidbits and trivia some fun with the X universe but per the thesis presented in the closing article titled hitting the right chord we start off with the easy to answer question what makes the X-Men so popular what do you say there Jeff a couple of things. Uh, first thing is that it rings true to uh, the voice of people who are kind of outcasts or have a prejudice against them. Mutants, homo superior, could be anybody. You could be born a mutant. So there was a popularity right there. You didn't have to travel to space or be a, you know, have some miraculous thing happen to make you a super person. You could become a superhero just by being born. You could be born and have powers. And so that appealed to everyone. And then also... Because they hit so hard on the issues of prejudice and racism and sexism and and diversity and things like that, it appealed to a huge wide spectrum of people. And they're the underdogs. They're not like the Avengers, the government regulated kind of group. They're not the Fantastic Four. They're outcasts. They're outlaws. And that kind of made them cool. They did the right thing, even though nobody thanked them for it. 
And uh, everybody can relate to that. Everybody roots for the underdog. For sure. Now, there we go. That That's the psychological selling point of the X-Men. That's what hits us in our hearts. But uh, Chris, why do they sell so many darn books? Well, if uh, we want to get meta about it, Marvel used to actually support them. <laughs> that was something they used to do. Uh, they used to remember that they had books with X's in the title, which uh, they've kind of put on the back burner here. I think a lot to Jeff's point here, this group of outcasts is just, uh, I mean, as comic fans, it was not cool to be a comics fan back in the day. It's not something that you would... Uh, you'd be really proud of like like today where it's we have like a whole culture around it back then it was a very solitary thing for a lot of us and seeing a group of outcasts here who are you know put upon and do have to come up from behind it, it, it does resonate with a lot of people in addition here um during the 80s chris claremont basically changed the language of superhero comic storytelling this wasn't just punches and kicks and guns and bombs this was soap opera which changed a lot of things across multiple comic book companies here, basically rewriting the language of what a comic book should be, especially in a team environment here. This wasn't just a team of characters. They were a family. And uh, we have things like the Fantastic Four who are literally a family, but they were never written the same way as the X-Men were. And then, you know, across the street at DC, the Teen Titans would do the same thing and Batman and the Outsiders would do the same thing. It adapted regular superheroics into a soap operatic sort of thing here where you actually saw these characters as more than characters. They were people. They were your friends. They were your family. It, it resonates. It just, you know, like they have it in the uh, magazine here. It hits the right chord and it uh, does so very, very well. Now, Michael, I know that you, you know, kind of kept your comics fandom on the down low back in the day, but at the same time, the X-Men became so popular when we were growing up. So for you, I mean, I'm sure you've met uh, all sorts of people with, you know, X-Men tattoos and whatnot, you know, they're just like, I just like them. But to your knowledge, what was connecting with the kids and the X-Men? I mean, I, I would say for a lot of people which I'll talk about more in more detail later on was the animated series really opened up the door to a lot of people that even never even touched a comic book that connected them to that universe and the understanding of being misunderstood is a universal idea everybody's a little misunderstood there's no such thing as a normal type of a person everybody's got some sort of weird idiosyncrasies or uniqueness to them and I think that really connects with people is that uniqueness yeah and it's interesting you know you guys you're getting so deep the the x-men hit you in the feels for most people they just look cool come on guys (laughs) some of them have claws some of them have laser eyes some of them have a skunk stripe in their hair i mean (laughs) big guns and whatever else you need you know so yeah definitely i feel like they appeal to so many people in so many different ways and we're gonna break down how that happened we're gonna get into all the eras we're gonna explore according to wizard magazine the details that they provide really what caused this explosion of I couldn't help myself. (laughs) Told you. So let me start out here because, you know, I've I've talked in the past, I am not the world's biggest X-Men fan. Like, I have maybe a dozen issues scattered throughout my long boxes in my collection. I wasn't deep into X-Men, even though I had their posters on my walls. I bought their action figures religiously, but I just, I wasn't into the storytelling and, you know, the soap opera just wasn't for me, but... In the early days of the X-Men, it was actually pretty interesting 
interesting to see what the whole concept was and what it came out of. So there's an article in here called X Marks the Spot. It's an oral history of the X-Men, according to Stan Lee, being interviewed. He reveals that they were created by mandate of Marvel publisher Martin Goodman. You might recall, for example, that back in the day, you know, the Justice League of America was doing so well, and so he said, we need a team, okay, I'll create the Fantastic Four. Now, uh, later on, he's saying, we want another team book, you know, you have the Fantastic Four, you have the Avengers, we need another team. So Stan's original title he came out with was The Mutants, which was rejected. So he said he just took the X from Professor X, who was their leader, applied it to the team, and dubbed them the X-Men. Now, interestingly, Stan gives credit to Jack Kirby for creating the Danger Room so they could always kick off an issue with action. And Stan admits, quote, I felt a little guilty that Iceman was such a copy of the Human Torch in an opposite way. And, quote, I hated the name Marvel Girl, but I couldn't think of anything better. <laughs> and Jean Grey's troubles with having a code name uh, continue. <laughs> Forever. Yeah. But also, hilariously, in my opinion, Stan states that Magneto, quote, didn't think of himself as a villain. On the other hand, he did call his group the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. We were kind of corny in those days. <laughs> contradicting yourself right in mid-sentence good job stan but finally he mentions that his favorite story ever was the first x-men versus the avengers battle because they had to both come out looking good so for him as a writer it was a real feat to plot it and figure out how you could do it without any side looking evil or otherwise jeff could you tell us which issue that was that they first tussled that would be uh number nine that came out oh let's see uh the cover date was January 1965. You see that? There's that retro recall in action. How do you know that? That's amazing. It's <laughs> amazing. You should be a fortune teller. <laughs> so yeah, even though I'm not the world's biggest X-Men fan, I do love a good classic comic book. And recently at an antique mall, I actually ran into an old book that must have been like the second or third time that the X-Men and Avengers battled each other. It's Avengers number 53 from 1968. And it's a real interesting time because, you know, the, the X-Men don't have matching uniforms anymore. They kind of all have their own unique style, especially this uh, multicolored angel with some very strange suspenders. But it's, it's a Roy Thomas, uh, John Buscema joint here, and they did a great job with it. It's really like just everybody's represented. Magneto is the bad guy in it also. So you got the whole Brotherhood of Evil Mutants there. And it's just it's fun from top to bottom. One fun fact is that this was a period where T'Challa, the Black Panther, did not have his full face covered anymore. So his mouth was open, which I found interesting. But all that being said, uh, during that, that creation of the team, I think, and I don't know if you guys agree, but it feels like a lot of people overlook that this was a Stan Lee-Jack Kirby collaboration. Because although they created them, I don't know that the stamp of what made the team great happened in the early days. What are your thoughts? Well, Stan Lee went till issue 19, I think. Kirby dropped off way earlier, was replaced by Warner Roth. But during that time period, they introduced all of the major elements of the X-Men. The original core characters, Cyclops, Marvel Girl, Angel, Iceman, Beast. The original 
you know, Magneto, the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants that at that time included Mastermind and Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch. They introduced the Blob. They introduced Charles Xavier's stepbrother, Juggernaut, Kane Marco. It was a pivotal time, those first issues. A lot was introduced about the world of the X-Men. So the foundation was put there for sure. Yeah, okay. Now, there is a follow-up article here called 60s Mutant Mania, the original team by Patrick Daniel O'Neill, and he covers the various creative teams, some of which we've mentioned, right, that worked on the book from 1963 to 1970. That's when the original book was canceled. Am I correct there, Jeff? Yeah, after 66 uh, with The Incredible Hulk, After that, they ran reprints until issue 94. So it's really interesting, though, because it turns out this is mainly an interview with Roy Thomas talking about his time on the book, which he says started with issue 20, stayed on till issue 43. I found it really interesting that Neil Adams took over as artist with issue number 55, during which time they say that Adams wanted to introduce a bat-like energy vampire, but the Comics Code Authority wouldn't allow it, you know, just he could have a vampire so they changed him from a bat to a pterodactyl and named him sauron <laughs> which i think is fantastic and i've mentioned previously uh, on an episode as we talk about our favorite x villains sauron is my favorite just for his sheer absurdity <laughs> so understanding the story of how he was created is is wonderful now thomas reveals also that he wanted to introduce the japanese hero sunfire in the 60s but stan didn't approve it he says i don't think he had anything against it he just wasn't interested in having that character of the book but through the early 70s then the x-men like jeff said became a reprint book before just going away altogether and then the team members just were kind of scattered you know the avengers beast is over there the champions you had angel and Iceman, and then occasional guest appearances you know in like marvel team up or something like that and then the characters didn't appear until issue number 64 according to my research and then eventually they were part of the giant size x-men number one team which was this whole new era a whole bunch of excitement and speaking of which jeff why don't you tell us about this all new all different era of the 70s and 80s well that that previous ex- history was the uh the title was the strangest superheroes of all and it changed to the strangest teens of all but when that went away it became the all new all different x-men and roy thomas len ween and dave cockram had got together to produce a giant-sized X-Men to revitalize the book. They searched for different characters that they could pull from markets around the world where either they didn't have a strong Marvel presence or markets that they didn't think that they would be able to open. And so it didn't matter if that character came from there because nobody could say that they were wrong in those areas. And so they pulled from all around the world several different mutants and created an international team. And it is covered in this 30th anniversary issue under several different articles. The first one is How a Typhoon Blew into Success. And it's an interview with Dave Cockrum discussing his contributions to the iconic relaunch of the X-Men and which characters he helped create. He had already previously drawn Nightcrawler when he was working for DC and he had already previously drawn a version of Storm that was a cat, things like that, and how he brought those to the X-Men when he was under Marvel. And then the second article is from Gopher to Comic Great, and it's an interview with Chris Claremont discussing how he fell into the job of writing the X-Men after Len Wein, and then his philosophy of working with the various artists on the title during his 16-year run. And one of those artists, even though they kind of butted heads sometimes, maybe those sparks ignited a fire because the most success was had under 
the collaboration of Sean Byrne and Chris Claremont. And there's an article, The Comics Master Mechanic, which is a retrospective on John Byrne's contribution to the X-Men with plotting as well as art. Now, you are obviously very familiar, Jeff, with this era. Tell us why. Remind us about your collection. I started collecting in the late 80s. I was particularly involved with Wolverine and his saga, and I enjoyed him as a character, and I wanted to find all the books that he was involved in, but as a kid, I couldn't afford them all. And so I would either base it off the artwork, or I'd base it off the writing, or if the character wasn't in that comic book, I skipped that month, or if it was a bi-monthly title, I skipped those two weeks. And so what I did is when I came into comic books, once Chris Claremont, he dropped out of the picture, and it was no longer the same character uh, to me, other, other writers started taking the character in different directions. I immediately started going just to back issues and very rarely bought the newest issue off the spinning rack or on the newsstand, and I bought mostly back issues. And so because of that, I have a near-complete X-Men collection uh, from Giant Size X-Men number one and uh, the issue number 94, Clear Intel issue 300. I actually gave away 281, 2300 to my twin brother, most of those unread, because I was mostly interested in what had happened, like going back to what Chris said about this being a soap opera and a saga, and they were family members, and you wanted to know what happened to them. Each month, you wanted to know what the updates were on the story. And I searched those back issue bins and was able to get a lot of Bronze Age X-Men. Yeah, that, I mean, that's awesome, you know, just that, that you wanted to, you know, experience that and get it all, you know, the complete story, figure it all out. So, Michael and Chris, I'm curious to know for you guys, how deep have you delved into this Claremont era where he was working with John Byrne, where he was working with Dave Cockrum? Like, for you guys, like, is this like a seminal period that you're very familiar with? Or is this what it's like, well, we know the hits, but... I came in after Claremont had left, but... I was always told that the Claremont run was the purest run. All the kinks from the Stan and Jack and so on were, were kind of gone. It was this new, all new, all different team. And so I went back and it was pretty earth shattering to actually put myself in those old issues. Um, I have a complete run going back to a little bit before Dark Phoenix Saga all the way till today. So that's since before I was born, I've got this run of X-Men. Wow. And uh, I've grown to absolutely adore the Claremont stuff. Um, Claremont and Byrne, wonderful, wonderful run. The, the Paul Smith run is fantastic. Going back to the soap opera thing here, to me, there really aren't any hits because it's all part of something you know, that makes it just so magical. You know, you have to have every bit of it. If it's, you know, Wolverine and Colossus getting drunk at a bar and fighting Juggernaut, that that's part of it. You know, it's not earth shaking. It's not dark Phoenix. It's not Ma mutant massacre, but it's part of it. And it's special and it's important. So I have, uh, I've read and reread all of these things in, in reprint mostly because I've been collecting in my adult years to, to buy these books that I couldn't afford as a kid because I only got a couple bucks a day for lunch money. And uh, you, you can't really buy a Bronze Age book back in the 90s for that kind of money. <laughs> so it was all reprints. It was all the, the wonderful Marvel Essentials, those big, thick black and white phone books. That's where I'd read everything. I've since filled in so much of my backlog that I've wanted to do a project where I actually do read them issue to issue just to really put myself in the gestalt of it, get myself familiarized with the letters pages and just all the discussion and all the just the wonderful magic of that run. So the, the Claremont run to me, very, very important. His second one, not so much, but the first one was just uh, <laughs> phenomenal. 
So I, I too, you know, came onto X Men probably more more or less when like the Jim Lee cover that was like, oh, I, I want to pick this up. And I di- I didn't really read Claremont stuff till years later, and I actually found myself maybe in the last decade where I've gotten much more into the X Men again in, in the modern era of comics, and a lot of the stories that they tell are somehow interconnected with, you know, a lot of the Claremont era stuff. So I would go back and I would read stuff that would either tie into it or if I had a question like, why is this significant? And I would end up going back and I'd find where it birthed from back then. And that's what I found very interesting, that a lot of the stuff that he did is still relevant today in a lot of cases. Yeah, for sure. It feels like that's what so much was built off of, especially like you mentioned earlier, Michael, you know, with the cartoon. Basically, you know, a majority of those stories were Chris Claremont stories, and they actually give a credit often based on stories by Chris Claremont. So he was instrumental in that time. I actually, what I did in preparation for this podcast, again, like I said, I'm not deep, deep in X-Men. I've read, like, the Giant Size X-Men number one. There was, like, this big collection, like, that took that whole first run uh, with, like, the Dave Cockrum art and stuff. And I read that way back in the day just to just to get familiar with it because I wanted to know more about the history. And then, you know, over time, I've, I've picked up, you know, a trade here or an issue here. But uh, what I did was I went on Comixology and I basically would read like three issue runs from all the different creative teams because I wanted to compare and I wanted to be like, okay, when they were doing this, when they were doing this, when they were doing this. And I just, I have to say just that it's not news to anybody, but the Burn Claremont collaboration, the storytelling on every level, like just John Byrne's ability to convey everything visually, to lay out a scene, was so amazing. It was just so beautiful, because you could have some interesting concepts in writing, but then if it's not conveyed correctly, yeah, who cares? But the fact that they were able to both be at the top of their game, yeah, just like you guys talked about, just from the the caring about the characters, the consistency of where they were going, I mean, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing, but also I I think more praise needs to go to Dave Cockrum just from, again, like, visualizing that era at the beginning in a lot of ways. Especially, you know, one of the very popular characters that has endured is Storm. And the fact that he he created Storm, I love that she began as a character called the Black Cat who would change into a cat. Because when you see how she is drawn, she has cat eyes still. Yeah. And so when you know that history, you're just like, oh, okay, that kind of explains it. You know, if they're not washed out, they've got kind of the cat eye look to them. So it's kind of fun to understand that history. But do you guys, do you guys have a moment? Because, you know, Chris and Jeff, you know, you guys, you've, you've read it all. Like you said, it's part of a whole. But is there a, either like a heart-wrenching moment for you or one that always connects with you when you think back? You're like, you know, if I was going to point somebody to a moment that they say, you know, this works for me. Maybe it'll work for you. Does does something spring to mind? Thinking about uh, that with what Chris said, where these characters, it's more of a day-to-day thing. It's more of a, you have to have the whole to understand. And so um, what made this era cool is that each one of these characters was flawed somehow. They all had their weaknesses, but they were teammates together. And where one of them failed, the other one would build each other up. And they all went through these dramatic arcs, whether it was emotional, psychological, whether it was physical. Some of them died multiple times. 
during this time <laughs> period. It was interesting to see how they brought each other through these things. And they dealt with everything from rape to prejudice to homesickness, you name it. Um, it's very hard to nail down one specific thing. I mean, obviously, you know, the death of Phoenix was a huge issue where they decided to totally take out a character, a main character, and that changed the course of history. And then when it was retconned and she was brought back, how angry that made Chris Claremont and just a few things like that. But like little things where the X-Men evolve, you know, each character evolves over time and you can see the arc of their personality development you know on each one it's hard it's very hard to nail down a specific moment that resonates more than any other now i want to mention something here you know you talked about the phoenix obviously and people always hold that up as, as a great evolution of a character but i just think it's so funny uh, how dave cockrum talks about that you know the green phoenix costume wasn't originally how they were trying to do it they wanted it to be white, white. with gold white. trim yeah mm-hmm was vetoed because it said quote no 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 if you give her a white costume you'll be able to read the other side of the page through her so that was those mm-hmm. editor archie goodwin who did not like that so mm-hmm. <laughs> also the fact that the, the short-lived character because you talk about people dying multiple times well he died once but it was pretty quick and that was thunderbird and the fact that he was there briefly but dave cockrum talks about how he loved his outfit and he thought they were so it was so cool and he was glad that they at least brought it back to be used essentially a little bit modified for Warpath later on. But you know, what he did was he said, I actually bought the Warpath Toy Biz action figure and then I ripped the stupid things off his shoulders and he had a uh, Thunderbird figure. Yeah. <laughs> Which is pretty fantastic, <laughs> doing his modifications. And for those who are, are devoted listeners of the podcast, you'll know that Dave Cockrum actually wrote in to the action figure section to Brian Cunningham way back in an early issue to talk about his gripe with the Storm figure. So he was definitely buying those action figures of the characters he created. But did you guys have any other thoughts about this classic era, Chris? What, what's what's your thought of, of a moment or a character that had a great impact? Going with what Jeff said here, uh, you know, there was a lot of loss in these uh, in these issues here. I know Jean Grey is kind of the uh, go-to for dying all the time, even though she really didn't. That's kind of what we go through. But it's the issues that usually follow those big stories, those big losses that I feel truly define this era because uh, it's one of the things that actually transcends the Claremont run altogether because Scott Lobdell would employ the same sort of thing after a huge earth-shattering event or a crossover or a death or a adamantum getting yoinked out of a out of a skeleton we'd have these quiet issues where they were just kind of licking their wounds and letting the dust settle and those to me are always the strongest the uh what is it elegy or elegy however you say that yeah. i'm from new york i don't know how to say anything so the one right after phoenix uh, passes and cyclops leaves the team here that issue to me is very very strong in that you see how they deal with loss it's more of the these aren't these aren't superheroes who go out and play human you know they're mutants but you know they're people who play play superheroes right you get to see the human side to them and how they cope and how they pull themselves back up 
And it was just, I mean, I've said it's a, it was a magic run, and it absolutely was. If, if anybody out there listening has the time or the energy to read the entire run or you know, the, the, the better parts of it, I would definitely recommend it. It'll change your life. <laughs> now, I will mention, like I said, I, I went through all the different creative teams, and the one that stood out to me, the artist that I feel maybe doesn't get enough attention or enough praise for what he did to keep the book going and interesting, at least, is Mark Silvestri. And so I, I read this issue that was Uncanny X-Men 244, which is the debut of Jubilee. Jubilee. Yeah. And I had never read it before. You know, I, I, I knew her origin from the cartoon. I knew her origin from the Generation X movie. <laughs> but here I was, you know, checking this out. And so she's in there, you know, showing off at a mall. She's running for mall security and stuff. But then the other side of it is all the X-Gals at this time, you know, so you got Psylocke and Storm and Rogue and Dazzler, and they're all going to go shopping because they need a break. Like you said, Chris, they've been through a lot. They're dealing mm-hmm. with loss and all these different things that have been going on uh, in their stories. And so they just basically get a portal opened up for them. What was that portal guy's name? Oh, Gateway. Gateway, Gateway. yeah. Always just throwing a portal around. But it was such a fun issue because they go to the mall and there's it's a fashion show. It's everything. It's actually something that would come up later in Gen 13 comics. It's almost like identical. Like they totally stole that, but I love it. But then there's these guys who are M-Squad and they're Ghostbusters for mutants. And it's like 100% a Ghostbusters ripoff, you know, and I love it so much. So it's just like you say, they have a little bit of action, but then also they spend so much time just being friends. And that continued, regardless of whether it was John Byrne or whoever, you know, Chris Claremont kept that intact for the most part. So I find it really fascinating. But we talked about this, you know, that was something that also seemed to connect for people on the small screen in the animated space. But the 90s, that wasn't the first time that the X-Men jumped off the comics page. So, Michael, what can you tell us about the X-Men in media? They're scorching the screen. And as everybody knows on this show... I'm not a big, long paragraph reader, and this article was lengthy, but it's very interesting, and there's a lot of cool stuff that I didn't even know about the X-Men in regards to their television origins and history. So, they started out, actually, their first appearance on television is all the way back in 1965 on the syndicated Marvel Superheroes show, where they appeared in a three-part miniseries with Submariner, the Prince of the Seas, as they titled him, and they team up to stop Doctor Doom. The story is called Doctor Doom's Day, and it was adapted from a Fantastic Four issue number six and Fantastic Four annual number three. The the animators could not use the Fantastic Four because they were already in their own cartoon series, which was produced by Hanna-Barbera. So this other show had to sub in the X-Men, and they brought in these relatively new characters at the time, Professor X, Cyclops, Beast, Marvel Girl, which I too have always hated that name for her, Angel, <laughs> and Iceman against Mole Man, Kang the Conqueror, the Mandarin, and several others in conjunction with Doctor Doom. That is a crew. I will tell you, Doom was right? rolling with the homies there. <laughs> From the Baxter building. 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so basically that's the other funny thing about this is they said the headquarters for the X-Men looked surprisingly similar to the Baxter building, which was pretty funny. But then after that 1965 appearance, they don't show up on TV again until 1978 in The Menace of Magneto and they're not really in it and it's really Magneto versus the Fantastic Four which I thought was kind of weird it's like okay they're like sort of touching the X-Men space but not really there and they're using Magneto as a Fantastic Four villain it was kind of interesting then we jump ahead to the wildly popular for the time and still often referenced from 1981 to 83 there is Spider-Man and his amazing friends and if you know that show one of his amazing friends that was in pretty much every episode was Iceman and then a newcomer of the time was was Firestar and there's several episodes where other X-Men sort of appear in the show as well as villains of the X-Men there's one for Iceman that shows the original team that's and then there's one for Firestar that shows some of the new characters like Wolverine and Storm exactly and there's also like appearances of Juggernaut and another episode called X-Men Adventure Video Man and Kitty Pride Cyclops, Storm, Nightcrawler, Colossus, and Thunderbird all appear. And these are all things that have popped up in 81 through 83. And the reason why they did this was the Spider-Man show was sort of like a dry run to see if there was interest in an X-Men series. And then we jump to 1989, where they have the uncanny X-Men Pride of the X-Men pilot. And it was telling the story of Kitty Pride's first days with the X-Men. And you have Professor Xavier, Cyclops, Storm, Wolverine, Colossus, Nightcrawler, and Dazzler fought Magneto, the White Queen, which I didn't realize she even existed at that point. I'm, I'm, I was surprised by that. I didn't know she was around that early. Juggernaut, Blob, Pyro, and Toad, which what I thought was interesting about this is like this particular lineup is very similar to what you get in the first X-Men movie, mm-hmm. you know, circa 1999-2000. So, though this Pride of the X-Men pilot is wildly popular by a lot of fans, no network was interested in it. So it just got, you know, dumped. Well, and Michael, I think it's very clear that the network executives were all big fans, and then when Wolverine came on the screen with an Australian accent, they said they don't understand that a Canadian is not an Australian. Chris, (laughs) I have to ask, in your years (laughs) of loving the X-Men, of researching, have you ever run into an explanation as to why Wolverine had an Australian accent. They were just getting ready for uh, Hugh Jackman, I think. <laughs> must be. It was a dry run. But you guys know me. I don't suffer uh, animated or movies, so I, oh, I just yes. do the comics. So <laughs> I don't know any of this stuff. On the Pride of the X-Men, the voice for Wolverine was the same voice as had done the Wolverine, Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends, who also had an Australian accent, and they just carried it over to the new one. Hmm. Interesting. And it was only done because they were trying to make him seem different than every other character because right. he was supposedly, you know, he's from he's from Canada, but how do you do a Canadian accent other that than it's tough? <laughs> so funny part about this particular show is it eventually gets shelved and then it's shown as part of what's called the Marvel Universe syndicated show and then is released on video in 1990. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's where I saw Pride of the X-Men and they would show like the RoboCop animated series and Dino Riders and then Pride of the X-Men every once in a while and then Spider-Man these amazing friends you know they just kind of would mix it up yeah i i sent away for the vhs tape as a kid really 
I had X Men Pride of the X Men. I could I could even recite the whole song for you right now. But, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it was one of my favorites as a child. Wait, what are they saying, Jeff? X Men, X Men, something the day. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's just, it's just something like I've never been able to decipher. Okay, so go, I got to do it in order, or I won't be able to remember it. Goes. <laughs> No place to hide, no place to run. The mutant age has now begun. X-Men, X-Men faces the day. X-Men, X-Men coming your way. Magneto's hordes are on their way to pillage, burn, and plunder. But there's one team that will not yield, the team that strikes like thunder. X-Men, <laughs> X-Men faces the day. X-Men, X-Men coming your way. And then it has Stan Lee saying that, you know, you never know the person next to you in class might be a mutant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, woo! Good work there. Very nice. Wow. Stan Lee actually wrote that song, by the way. What? Re- really? Yep. Mm-hmm. I did not know that. Yeah, I found that in a Marvel Age magazine. Yeah, the X-Men theme song penned by the man himself, Stan Lee. And uh, yes, it's exactly as uh, Jeff just recited it. Wow, that is fantastic. That's fascinating. That's interesting. This is breaking news, folks. You know, 30 years later. <laughs> I always thought it said X-Men, X-Men, X-Brigade. It's like a team of X-Men. I don't know. Well, I'm sure Rob Liefeld would have loved that. Loved it. He would have loved it. He would have trademarked that. So... <laughs> In, in 1991, a company known as Carol Co. optioned the rights for X-Men and Wolverine for use in a film, which we've talked about on this show, the James Cameron potential movie that they wanted to call Wolverine and the X-Men, and it was intended to have Xavier School, and they, and they bring in Kitty Pride, and it kind of yada 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 the story unfolds from there it never happened obviously as we all know so i'm gonna only just graze over it now the next thing is where we get into what becomes the animated series also in 91 a woman by the name of margaret loesch she left marvel productions to become the head of fox children's network in charge of all the animated shows on what was known as the fourth network and for those of you guys who lived post-basic cable and and not having actual cable television. There was originally ABC, CBS, NBC, and then this fledgling company called Fox, and they were pumping out all these new shows. And uh, it was pretty funny. Like, you know, we had a... My sister and I shared a black-and-white 13-inch television that you had to, you know, use a a wrench to change the channel because you could, you know, had to click it up (laughs) on the thing. And uh, we had the bunny ears always adjusting it, like, oh, you know. So anyway, I'm, I'm rambling now. But anyway, so so Loesch was a big fan of the Pride of the X-Men show, and she wanted to get her hands on an X-Men animated series for her Saturday morning cartoons. And she worked out a deal to buy the rights to use this as an animated series and partnered with Saban Entertainment to set up a 13-episode run of a new animated X-Men series. And the main team would have been Wolverine, Cyclops, Gambit, Storm, and Jubilee with newcomer Morph, which I didn't know he was a newcomer and the thing about this show is i never understood why wolverine was so close with this character that we meet in the first episode who then spoiler gets killed in the first episode but then comes back years later or whatever i don't know it always kind of confused me a little bit and they're considering a secondary team which was beast professor xavier and gene gray as we all know they kind of all work together and so on and so forth but that's essentially what the story was so now the show originally premiered in october of 92 and it was one of the top rated saturday morning shows when they aired the first two episodes and then they 
weirdly dropped the third episode like on a random Friday afternoon, but then nothing. And so basically what happened was they had the, there's a company that did all the animation was this company called Akam or it's like A K O M out of Korea, and they did a lot of really bad animation. And there's a lot of errors, and they and they had hundreds of notes for retakes that the company refused to do. And the article notes that this Akam company, their company model says Akam quality is our only compromise. You shouldn't so, compromise quality, right? Right. That should be like the, the thing you will not. Uh, yeah. Right. Well, no, that, that that's not their official tagline, Michael. That's an industry insider says what they oh. should be saying about themselves. <laughs> oh, it says in the thing, an industry insider says, and I missed. Oh, okay. yeah. There you go. <laughs> I just I've had two glasses of wine as I was taking these notes. So, yeah, <laughs> who knows what kind of gobbledygook I got coming out here. So, so, Chris, we know you don't have time for all these interpretations. You got the straight stuff from the comics. But, Jeff, I'm curious for you. You, did you spend time watching this animated series with everybody else? Did you stick with it? Did it disgust you? What was your reaction? Well, it was 1992 when it was really going full blower. I was in high school, and so I wasn't watching a whole lot of cartoons of anything. And I did try, because of my love of the X-Men, I did try to sit down and watch and uh, really get into it, but I could not. I just could not. Maybe it was because of these new characters like Morph. All of the stories were loosely based on things that had happened in the comics, but they were changed so significantly that... It really did. It put me off, and I didn't. I've tried several times, even as an adult, to, to go back and watch a few episodes, and I, I'm just not into it. Interesting, interesting. Well, Michael, obviously, I know you were a huge fan. I couldn't escape it either. I mean, I, I was all about tuning in and checking it out. Although I didn't stick, you know, it wasn't one of those like appointment television things for me. It was like I would watch it if it was on, like Spider Man. When that showed up, I was like, okay, I'm gonna watch all Spider Man. But like X Men for me, I was like, yeah, it's it's all right, I'll watch it. But I didn't watch like the later seasons. I now see exist on Disney Plus. I was like, what? What is this episode? Yeah. So here's the funny thing about that, right? Yeah, I I was religiously watching Batman the Animated Series, Spider-Man, because it would fall in line and I would watch it. And I, you know, the first two, I'd say maybe two and a half seasons, I was all in. And then I started to fizzle out a little bit due to the global pandemic of our world right now. And it being on Disney Plus, I tried to dive back into it. I couldn't do it. I wasn't as into it as I thought I'd be like i rewatched all of spider-man all of batman the animated series but this i couldn't rewatch for some reason yeah and like you talked about acom you know having their issues right they did not have a great reputation in the industry and i recently on our social media made this declaration that you know the pride of the x-man animation is so much better than anything they ever did on this animated series from that animation perspective i just cannot get on board with it a lot of people agreed and i was happy to see that but some some people were disgusted. <laughs> it was the best lineup of the bad guys. It was the best lineup of the good guys, and it and it you know spawned video games and and all kinds of good stuff. The, this new series, though, correct me if I'm wrong. Saban Entertainment was the same ones that did Power Rangers and things like yes. that. Correct. Okay. Correct. And so that kind of put me off also. But going back to like Spider-Man and his amazing friends or the Incredible Hulk and even Pride of the X-Men, they all were narrated by Stan Lee. They all were – they had an opening caption and a closing caption and they had – interesting things and they had a unique songs and things and the Taban X-Men it only had unless you were listening to the Japanese version as far as I know it was only music really in the intro yeah and it just didn't resonate with me the same way it did with Stan Lee laying it out for me 
The other thing that I found weird about the uh, 1992 animated series is I think you see Dazzler in one episode. Maybe you see Kitty Pride one time in the show. You never see most of these like tentpole X-Men characters other than Wolverine, who's in every single episode, Cyclops, Beast, Jean Grey, and, and Xavier. You don't, I mean, Iceman's barely ever in it. Angel's only in it when they do the Apocalypse story. Like, it's just weird that they don't cover a lot of these characters. You know, the one thing I always had a fun time with is they would put characters in as random cameos. But like you say, they'd just be like silent character designs in the background a lot of times. You're like, oh, it's that guy. Oh, it's that guy. You know? Sometimes it would actually be random. <laughs> That's his, true, yeah. With his gun arm hand, whatever that was he could do. Michael, I'm curious then, so obviously that was in response to, that series, you know, came out of a monumental moment in X history uh, that is something that I, you know, we look at all the history that came before, everything Chris Claremont did, and then we get to this point in 1991, and Jim Lee is now the powerhouse artist behind this book that is getting it noticed in a whole different way. So what could you tell us? now chris about this era of the 90s and what it meant to the legacy of the x-men that could be a loaded question depending on who you (laughs) ask it was a seat change for absolute certain we had the superstar artists who whether they meant to or not wound up pushing everybody else out of the way chris claremont was gone louise simonson was gone it was a whole new era they stuck around just long enough to uh plant a lot of seeds that they never intended to water because uh they had uh they had brighter horizons uh, to, to head toward. So we had this weird, like, nebulous interim here where they were handed this, you know, golden platter with this is what you're going to be. This is everything that this entire company, this entire industry is going to be hinged on. X-Men number one, volume two, still holds a world record. You know, what was it? Eight million copies this thing yeah. sold. World record holder for 30 years now. Ridiculous. And then Lee, Liefeld, Silvestri, they all leave. And we're just left holding the bag. They brought back John Byrne to help script. And he lasted for about six minutes before <laughs> running to the hills. He lasted for a cup of coffee, it sounds like. He, la- he lasted long enough to buy a fax machine and then run away. It was like so, uh, Four issues of the new X-Men, I think, and like six issues of the Uncanny X-Men. I think it was three issues of Uncanny. It was really very short, very short. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I mean, it was just a weird time. And it's when I came in and, you know, you come in because a lot of the image guys stuff would linger. You know, you'd see like Jim Lee art in the ads. You'd see sometimes Jim Lee art on the cover, but you'd open it up and there's no Jim Lee, you know, and there's this guy named Scott Lobdell that no one's ever heard of before. And uh, another guy named uh, Fabian, nobody can pronounce his last name, Nisiesa, that nobody's heard of before. So it's, I still uh, screw it up all the time. Oh, totally. totally. Yeah. I mean, I don't think I've ever said it the same way twice is a thing. <laughs> but it was a very, very interesting time, a very exciting time. And it was a time where I think and I mean, I, I could be completely wrong because I was not around as a in the day comic reader during the Claremont run here. But the X-Men kind of became a fiefdom, you know, the line blew up, but it kind of all stuck together. It was on the fringes of the Marvel Universe at this point. Let me give you an example of that. Just during the 80s. And into the first part of the 90s, to where where this is the 30th anniversary special, came out in 1993, there were 13 ongoing 
titles that branched off of the X-Men. 13. That's not counting the 39 limited series or one-shots that starred in Batman. And so we're talking thousands of different issues. If you wanted to follow the entire story up until now, this first 30 years, good luck. I mean, it would have cost you a mint. A lot easier then than it is now. Oh, yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah, forget it. <laughs> There was, there was a huge number. I mean, think about it now. Now we're up to 57 years. So I didn't even want to know how many titles have branched off now. I was in the comic book store today, actually, and I, I kind of like looked around, and I think there are like 10 different X-Men books coming out this like each month. And, you know, some are like Sword of the X-Men. X Ro- of Swords is yeah. a crossover event. It's a 22-part crossover event. That 22 parts? Oh, man, I was mad back in the day when you had to buy eight or nine issues of Mutant Massacre or, or something. I, you know, you a lot of these are five bucks each. Yeah, oh, they're, they're loaded and they're right expensive. Now, but- right now you have, you have X-Men Volume 5, mm-hmm. you have Marauders, Wait a minute, five volumes? So Uncanny X-Men, that's volume one. New X-Men, the Adjectiveless uh-huh. one. Adjectiveless is volume two. Volume so three is the Victor one. Vic, uh, number four is the all-women version, and volume five is the one we're currently on, the Jonathan Hickman version. Wow, that blows my mind. We're up to X-Factor volume four. Yeah. We got X-Force volume six. Wolverine volume seven. Cable Volume 4, New Mutants Volume 4, Excalibur Volume 4, Hellions Volume 1, um, and Marauders <laughs> Volume 1. It's a, and, it's a loaded and roster. And the Marauders are now he- heroes. They're not villains anymore, right? The Marauders are run by uh, Don't Kitty Call Pride. Me Kitty Pride. Yeah. Yeah, we also had a terrible time finding a, a code name. Ariel Sprite. Yeah, what are you going to do? And yeah. I still love her. I, I actually have, I got to take a picture of it next time and I'll send it to you, Adam. I have the, like, the first four issues of Kitty Pride. I have them somewhere in one of my boxes. And it's like her in, like, feudal Japan or whatever. Like, it's, like they do her origin stories over that it's a, it's a cool little four issue run somewhere i have in my archives so chris you know this is interesting that you know we're talking about all these like current you know 22 part crossovers all those types of things mm-hmm. going on it's very interesting there's an article in here that is the the interview with louise simonson right where she essentially apologizes for creating the idea of crossovers with chris claremont Absolutely. Absolutely. They put together, uh, which one was it? The Mutant Massacre, I believe. And uh, this was a story that Claremont wanted to tell because he thought at the time there were too many mutants. Uh, the mutants live on Krakoa right now, and there are hundreds of thousands of them. So uh, that's a little bit of perspective there. So Claremont, after seeing, you know, hey, we got like 60 mutants, let's kill a bunch of them. And he wanted to wipe out the Morlocks, which puts him deep in my heart because the Morlocks suck. They, they do suck. They do. Um, I agree. Scott Lobdell wrote a story called The Last Morlock Story, and damn it, he lied. They they kept coming back. But uh, Claremont wanted to kill a bunch of Morlocks. Awesome idea. Simonson said, hey, that might be too big a story to tell in one book. And so it was told across the three ongoing books at the time, X-Factor, New Mutants, and and Uncanny X-Men. And the success of the thing financially was just so strong that Marvel Marketing said, hey, we want more of this. And so every year, sometimes more than uh, once well, that, a year, like when you constant. got into like the early 90s, they were doing two or three a year. Sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah. When yeah. we got into the 90s. Yes. But when it started, it was yeah, it was annual. Then it was maybe twice a year. Now they barely end before the next one starts. Often yeah. we're finishing one up and we've already started the next one. And it's uh, well, it sucks. <laughs> it's very, very lame. <laughs> So yes, Mrs. Simonson cops to it and apologizes. Apologizes to all of our wallets and all of us obsessive 
Pulsionists. Yeah, that's a <laughs> that's her lot here. It was an interesting article. Otherwise, uh, she pretty much recounts her life and times as an X Men editor, as an X Men freelancer, and you know she starts off by telling that oft told tale about uh, Dark Phoenix frying the Dabari asparagus people, and that's actually something that I was talking about on my solo show not too long ago because in an issue that tied in with Empire. If you guys are following current day Marvel, I'm not sure if you are. I, uh, Michael I, is. I have it. Yeah. Okay, so Empire Cole and X-Men was a four-part cash-in miniseries that absolutely... Empire with a Y, I gotta point out, which really irritates me grammatically that it's the Y and <laughs> not an I. I gotta just point that out. And it catches every spell check, too, so you have the, the damn wavy line under it every single time you type it. If it doesn't autocorrect, which it does sometimes, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But in Empire X-Men number two, the whole thing is about these plant aliens, because, of course, it's an alien invasion, because it's a Marvel crossover. That's all they friggin' do. So, or or, or, or it's heroes fighting heroes. Well, of course, heroes fighting heroes, or we have to run everything by shield, or everything we thought we knew is wrong. That's uh, that's the Marvel uh, quadfecta there. But uh, Magic talks to a vegetable alien and says, hey, you know what? One time the X-Men killed a billion broccolis. And it's like, no, no, they killed asparaguses. And no, it was Dark Phoenix, not the X-Men. So <laughs> that's kind of been on my nerves. I feel like that's kind of really misleading shorthand writing and uh, an editor or the five they have employed should have caught that. But she talks about this. Miss Miss Simonson does. And, you know, how can you do this? How can you get away with this? You're making a hero commit genocide, an entire planet. And he's like, ah, Jim Shooter's cool with it. Jim Shooter's cool with it. Only Jim Shooter was not cool with it. So uh, really? they, no, no, they had to actually uh, they had to. That's why Phoenix had to die, because Jim Shooter said there's no way to redeem someone who destroyed a planet and is like well what do you want to do and claremont wanted to like revert her to like having like an adolescent mind like a child's yeah, like mind a lobotomy or something something like that yeah she, and she would de- be depowered and just shooters like no she killed a billion people so she can't do that and it's like well we'll put her in jail no the x-men will try to get her out of jail you know there needs to be something final here so the mandate comes down gene had to be killed off this is of course before they decided that gene and the phoenix force were two separate things so this felt like an actual death retcon she didn't die she was in a cocoon in the bottom of jamaica Bay. The, the funny thing about them killing off phoenix right instead of making her die as the villain they kind of make her die as a martyr she sacrifices herself yeah she didn't get punished for the crime so to speak yes yeah, she died obviously but it's more of a martyr's death than like the heroes killing and defeating the villain so to speak you know that's yeah, true yeah they, i think they tried playing that as though there was enough of gene inside her that, i uh, guess she knew what she did was wrong. I, d- I don't know how that works post, you know, Busick Redcon, but uh, it was a thing. Um, uh, there was another mandate that Jim Shooter pushed down. He said, uh, make more mutant books or else I'll get someone who will, because Claremont and Simonson did not want to expand the line. And so when they were pretty much told, hey, the line's expanding, whether you're with it or not, that's when the New Mutants came up, which was a callback to Stan Lee's original name for the team, the Mutants, with the word new in front of it. Simonson would go freelance from here. She would take over the writing chores of New Mutants from Claremont initially on an interim basis but wound up staying for quite a bit longer as well as the third ongoing book because the line had to grow and this was X Factor. She took over that from uh, I think it was uh, Bob Layton I think she took over from. One of her earliest creations of course was Apocalypse. She also turned Angel into Archangel uh, over in New Mutants and title of this uh, article here with uh, Poor Dead Doug, she killed Doug Ramsey and uh, a lot of the artists hated working on him because he couldn't do anything besides hide behind a tree. So... (laughs) Doug Ramsey's superpower was linguistics. He could speak any language or read any language. Yeah, not good on the battlefield.
battlefield. Right now, he has a techno-organic arm in the Dawn of X books, but it's actually Warlock who's, like, stowing away on his body. And everybody knows it, but it's still kind of a secret. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> they have some plan for it. Uh, Simonson does say that the fan reaction to Doug's death was a little unexpected because people found it very poignant. And she talks about a uh, issue featuring warlock you know doug's pal who didn't understand death and thought he could bring doug back and he's like carrying around his body very dark but also a very sweet issue and she considers that one of her favorites and then we go into the well-trodden territory of her bumping heads with rob liefeld and how she was sort of pushed out the door in not so many words was uh, told hey you know so chris this brings up a question i want to ask you guys okay because yes there the, you said there was this huge changing of the guard her however brief it lasted you know rob liefeld Feld, Jim Lee, to a lesser extent, Wells Portacio, right? Like they are saying, no, this is what it needs to be. You guys are old. It's boring. You're not doing it right. We need to do what the kids are into. Rob Liefeld especially talks about this, you know, when he tells his stories. Like she was writing them like it was still the 80s, you know, like it just, it didn't make sense. It wasn't hip. It wasn't current. It's not wrong. And so I, I was just telling him, we got to update this. So that's the question that I have for you is because look what they did i mean bob harris sided with the artists and yes they eventually left because they made so much money they had so much star power they could do whatever they wanted but would the books have possibly fizzled out if claremont and louise simonson and everybody else had just kind of kept it status quo for another decade we needed this boost i believe this was what puts it on the map in pop culture look they tried pride of the x-men nobody wanted it you know people that saw like the video game but like there wasn't like this core thing that everybody in the world could say i know what x-men is jim lee got the ball rolling and then now we have an x-men animated series that reaches the world and that leads to movies that leads to everything else it keeps the franchise alive am i right or wrong I think, I you're, think right. you're right. I mean, Jeff, you're on the other side because you stopped buying. You stopped giving them your money. If Chris Claremont had kept writing on the book and Jim Lee just followed his lead, do you think that would have been the right move? Well, Chris almost stopped multiple times. He was running out of things to do, and he would have to go to his editor, who was Louise Simonson at the time, and Wheezy would set him on track again saying, hey, you've left this plot dangling. You've left this plot dangling. And that would give him a new idea of what to do again. But then again, on the other, on the flip side of the coin, you've got Liefeld coming in and creating characters like Cable. Well, you know, in one year's time, we had no idea was Cable, was he Nathan Summers? Was he Strife? Was he Ahab? There was all these potential, you know, he's from the future, we know, but we don't know exactly who he is. There was no back history or anything where Claremont and Wheezy's approach doing these mutant books was they had an arc. They knew where they wanted to go. And they would fill in stories along the way. And these newcomers, these multi-pocketed, you know, bandolero, belted, shoulder-padded superheroes that showed up, there was no thought of it. They just looked cool. And then as soon as these guys left, everybody else is left scrambling to come up with backstories on who they were. And so I think, uh, I don't know, it, it did provide the impotence to branch out to the media where, you know, Marvel movies like Blade and things did. I mean, it was a good movie, but it did not open up the world of comics to the movies where the X-Men movies really did. And would that have happened without the success of the new X-Men series number one in 1991, 92? Would it have happened without the cartoon? I don't think it would have. And both things are right. It would have continued and we would have had a more coherent storyline. 
but it also would not have branched out to mainstream media like it has. Is that for better or for worse, Chris? What do you think? Well, we've seen some of what Claremont intended to do before he left. There was a series called X-Men Forever that ran forever, um, (laughs) and it wasn't very good. It was not very good. Chris Claremont would hang out on a lot of the old message boards. I I am a Usenet guy through and through. I would spend hours a day on Usenet and I would hear a lot of things from various Claremont interviews and just comments that he would make um, on various fan sites. And he would give little hints about what he would have done had he not left. And it sounded really fascinating. And then he had the opportunity to do it and it sucked. (laughs) And I wonder like, I don't know. I mean, you talked about Liefeld saying that Wheezy was writing like it was the 80s. She was. When Rob Liefeld came, it's easy for us to be like, oh, yeah, pockets, no feet. It's easiest for us to say that, but he put an energy and an excitement. And that entire breed of artists did. Whether they're your flavor or not, it was exciting. It was different. It was novel. It was bigger than what it was. And uh, I think it needed that. I definitely think it needed that. Like, what was Louise Simonson going to do? With New Mutants number 100. What was she going to do? I mean, we're going to fight the Annie men again? I mean, what are we going to do? Are we going to bring <laughs> Bird Boy and Gossamer back? No. Uh, what would Claremont do with Uncanny X-Men number 300? Okay, we're going to kill Wolverine and turn him into a hand assassin. Oh, great. That's wonderful. They tried that. It didn't, it didn't really work. I feel like the scrambling was actually... You know, we talk like nowadays how close we are to creators because, I mean, we're all on social media. We can see what everybody thinks, everybody says. We know a lot. We know probably too much. But the working through process of the post exodus, the image exodus, it made it so the people who were being paid to be creative had to actually be creative. You know, we had dangling things like who the hell's cable? Well, we got to figure this out. We got to actually do something about it because nobody knows what Liefeld had in mind. Was he always going to be baby Nathan? Well, he could say yes now, but I mean, let's jump back to 1990 and see what really was going to be. We don't know. So it caused people to actually have to get creative and actually go back to Claremont's well and do what he did just a little bit differently. Picking up those loose threads, trying to make sense of them, trying to make it fit into this weird tapestry that gets weirder by the month. Making something that's labyrinthine into something at least navigatable. And I think that a lot of work went into that. A lot of heart went into that. And I mean, there were some stinkers in there, but there were some stinkers everywhere. But I think it was at the end of the day, it was a net positive and really set the table for not only X-Men comics, but comics in general for the whole decade for, you know, for better and for worse, of course. So what I find interesting is, you know, they have an article in here called The Future is Now because this is now basically a year after, you know, Image is the hottest thing in comics. And like Jeff said, you know, they're they're kind of scrambling at this moment. They're trying to build up new superstars because Marvel has nobody anymore. Literally, they lost everybody. And so they're bringing back an old standby. They got John Romita Jr. And then they got this new Cuber kid, Andy Cuber, and he actually provides the cover for this issue, you know, this fold-out X-Men cover. I was going to ask you who that cover was. I like this cover. Is it funny you say that? I was going to ask you. So I'm very curious, in this period, in this 1993 era, Chris, as you were reading, and Jeff, if you stuck it out at all in random issues here, did he live up to the hype? No, it was very, very clean comic storytelling, which... It's one of those things that I would say has a lot of the 90s sensibilities without a lot of the 90s excess. Hmm. It definitely didn't look like an 80s comic, which was a good thing 
for this new, you know, new sort of realm that we were in. But it wasn't. I mean, we didn't have broccoli florette hair. <laughs> you know, we didn't have the shoulder pads as much. It was almost as though it was like the Liefeld and the Lee versions through a sieve, like through a filter, like bringing it back to the more Marvel style than the just bombastic anything goes image guy style. I mean, Andy Kubert, his brother, Adam, also fantastic. Adam Kubert right now is on the uh, Wolverine book uh, in the in the current year and is putting out just tremendous, tremendous work here. I, you know, it's funny. I, sometimes I can't tell the two of their works apart because they, they do have a very similar style. But I, I feel like he was a it was a worthy successor to Jim Lee. And th- those were huge. Huge shoes to fill, and I, I, I'm sure not everybody would agree that he did fill them, but he did a very, very good job. Interesting. Okay, now I'm curious for you, Jeff, because you know John Romita Jr. was returning to the X-Men. He had a period where he was the artist on the book, but it was a very different art style in the '80s than it was now here in '93. Boxy '93. Yeah. So, so we we've had a a big discussion on the on past episodes about you know John Romita Jr. We failed fans we not fans modern day even you know post 90s so would that have been something to bring you back in and you're like oh john ravina jr is back no unfortunately not i came in during the Silvestri era and i really liked the paul smith artwork and i worked backwards and I felt that John Romita Jr. was almost the weakest point. Um, I preferred some of the other guys, you know, Brent Anderson and Arthur Adams. And, you know, when I went back to John Byrne, I was just blown away. And, you know, I loved Jim Lee as well. But John Romita Jr. for me, kind of hit or miss. So that wouldn't have brought me back. Even Kubert, I love his Wolverine stuff now. Even though I'm not following it, I am looking at the art. But he's also the guy that's responsible for the bandana no-nose Wolverine. So, <laughs> <laughs> and, and John Byrne was the same way. John Byrne illustrated some of the, the issues of Wolverine after Claremont left, after issue 10. And they were kind of hit or miss for me, too. So Jim Lee really set a high bar, and it would be very hard to follow that. So even though it became not your cup of tea, you still appreciate the Jim Lee art style? Oh yeah, I collected clear into the I collected uh, into the Jim Lee era. Jim Lee is one of my favorite Wolverine artists. Period. Oh wow, okay. And so I really like that. I also like the Barry Windsor Smith. There's a lot of great artists out there, but what I didn't appreciate was and I and I like like I said I came in during the Sylvester era, so I really like him, but I didn't appreciate. Liefeld's work. I didn't appreciate Eric Larson and Todd McFarlane. Those are the guys that they were so outlandish and the body proportions were so weird that it really pushed me out. Okay. So real quick here, I want to get into because this era was so big. Like we said, the visuals were so strong, mainly from Jim Lee. He made so much money with his X-Men trading card series. It was one of the best selling series. Marvel cards were already a big deal. But Jim Lee, according to the reports, his X-Men uh, series of cards was just a, a huge seller. But there was a lot of merchandise that shot off of, of that explosion of X-Men number one coming out. You know, I had an X-Men t-shirt back in the day. There was somebody online that was just asking about that the other day on our social media. It seemed like there were so many things out there. And Chris, I know that you have held on to a very unique item that is actually <laughs> advertised in this issue. So what can you tell us about what was being offered and how it came into your possession? Oh boy, there's a company called Character Time. 
that is offering limited edition watches based on the X-Men here. And uh, I never realized that these things existed. I'm sure I've seen this ad tons of times. I just never paid attention to it. But probably about five or six years ago, uh, my favorite X-Men is Cyclops. He's just, he's always been my favorite guy. And my brother-in-law, he knew that. And I opened up my Christmas gift. And I wish I could remember which year it was, but I suppose it really doesn't matter. And it was a box that said character time. And it had a whole bunch of like weird X-Men and panels on it. I'm like, what the hell is this? I open it up and there's some top secret documents in there. <laughs> and I move those out of the way. And then there's this metallic blackbird, you know, like the X-Men's jet. I'm like, okay. And I open this up and then there's a Cyclops watch inside it. And uh, I shared that on the uh, socials earlier. <laughs> and uh, it's a very strange, it's like almost an anachronism here because it's 1993, but it's, it's an older picture of Cyclops. And <laughs> it's just him saying, that's it. That's it. That's all he's saying. <laughs> His famous catchphrase. Yes, the what he is known for saying. That's <laughs> it. It's just so damn bizarre, but I, I can't help but love it. It needs a mister after it. That's it, mister. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what was interesting is back in the day, according to this ad, I mean, th- this is a situation where it was two payments each of $29.95 plus $5.95 shipping and handling. Michael loves that shipping and handling. Oh, the worst. But it's six different watches, six different X-Men metal vehicle watch containers, and six different trading cards, all limited to 5000 Oh, boy. It's exclusive. It is. You are one of the few, Chris. Congratulations. There we go. Got to be good at something right now i'm curious for you jeff because again like you said you're you're getting in when this x media is just ramping up to the general public was there any merchandise that you grabbed outside of comics back in the day related to x-men uh, i had two wolverine posters i had an arthur adams wolverine poster in the classic brown and tan outfit and then i had a surprisingly enough a john romita jr wolverine poster <laughs> I really didn't. I didn't have any articles of clothing. I mean, I played the video games. I bought, you know, I had the the, the video games that were released for Nintendo were kind of lame. The X-Men and the yeah. whole thing. And it was still, like uh, Chris said, it wasn't the most popular thing. And so I didn't want to be adorned in X-Men you gear. You couldn't wear it out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I bought all the weird issues, though. Not the one-offs, but like the weird. I have a Paragon software X-Men shoe. I have a, a Dallas newspaper X-Men at the State Fair of Texas issue. Oh, yeah. I had a lot of these weird issues that, you know, you didn't see on the newsstand or the spinner rack, things like that, but I, w- I really didn't have any merchandise. Oh, well, that's not true. I had Secret Wars figures from 1984, and I did have the first uh, X-Men figures from 1991. Oh, okay. There you go. So yeah, so in action figure form for sure. I know Michael and I took part in that. But Michael, did you ever grab some type of X merchandise that you can remember that was maybe a little off the wall? I mean, I have a story. It's a little bit forward in time. So in 1999, I was involved in a club and, and they got me linked up with Universal Studios and they had me do like reviewing of movies and music and stuff like that. And at the end of the school year, which I think was maybe 2000 when I graduated high school, they flew us down to Universal Studios Orlando, and we got to see the X-Men movie a week before it premiered in the rest of the theaters. And it was just me and like 10 other kids from around the country. It was pretty cool. And we had to like sit down and give like a roundtable feedback on the thing. And they gave us a bunch of merch and like lanyards and hats and shirts and stuff like that that I don't know where have been, but they were all 
all exclusive and you'd never saw them again. And I think I lost them at some point in college, you know, <laughs> drinking, drinking and partying and, you know, but yeah, that was, but I, I didn't have anything like really unique other than like, I had a couple of X-Men t-shirts, one that's like the Xavier Academy when I was in probably like fifth grade, but I never wore it out because I was like, people are gonna be like, what's the Xavier Academy? Are you like in some weird private school? I was like, yeah, that's what I'm at. Yes, I'm in a weird <laughs> private school. <laughs> Well, man, this is so weird. Like I say, I wasn't reading the comics, but I was all in on the merch because they had so many interesting things. I bought like the X-Men fruit snacks. I bought the uh, diamond sticker activity album, you know, where you would get your packs of stickers and then you put them in on the numbered space. I even ordered the X-Men exclusive pogs from Hi-C and I we never drank Hi-C in my house. My mom was again, sugar cereal and sugary drinks. But I was like, mom, for me, can we just buy the allotted number of high C so I could get the UPC, mail it in, and get these pogs. <laughs> and I still you were an have Ecto them. Cooler kid? <laughs> I wish. I mean, that's the thing. Ecto Cooler was still around back then, but I just bought like the standard like tropical punch or whatever flavor. <laughs> But also, very recently, from this era, I picked up a relic. Jeff and I got together a few years ago, and we had a weekend, man. We had so much fun going back in time, and we hit up a bunch of garage sales. We went to these yard sales, and we got to this one where this old lady had passed away, and she had saved up all these gifts for her grandkids, like, since the 80s, and had obviously, like, lost them and forgot to give them to them. So, like, you know, Jeff walked away with like some muscle figures still in the package i mean i got some mr t gym bags still in the box <laughs> but also i got an x-men collapsible toothbrush that has wolverine on the front it was still in the plastic i have it on my shelf over here so it's just like they were everywhere like you put an x on whatever you could and it would sell i have to say you find the most unique places between the thrift stores that you go to and the yard sales that you've told me about. Like, you find things that are unheard of. I've never even, like, imagined finding the stuff that you do and these, like, treasures when you go searching. It's amazing. That is my mutant ability. It is. <laughs> it sure is. Oh, all right. Well, now, speaking of these these abilities that we've touted of our guests here on this special episode, we have a little segment we are going to bring to you called Quiz the Experts. Oh, boy. There is a CBIQ quiz in this issue, okay? And the CBIQ is not something we have delved into on the main show. We basically pushed Michael to the limits taking the contest quiz every minute. <laughs> episode and finally he's out of that it's all on you the listener but here we're gonna go back and forth between chris and jeff and see if they can answer these questions to prove their mettle as x fans all right so number one this is for jeff what villain did the new x-men face on their first mission they faced the mutant island krakoa correct ding ding wow Okay, question number two. This is for Chris. Which of these characters are related? A, Boom Boom and Skids, Professor X and Juggernaut, Banshee... Professor X and Juggernaut. That's correct. So, wait, oh, Havoc is related to Cyclops, right? Yeah, they're brother. his brother. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, okay, so you're right. Yes, it's B. <laughs> He's like, I know I'm right. <laughs> yes, that is correct. All right, here we go. Number three for Jeff. 
Charles Xavier had a child with A. Lalandra, B. Stevie Hunter, C. Maura McTaggart, or D. Emma Frost. Hey, Lalandra was the Shi'ar Empress, and I don't believe they had any children together. Stevie Hunter is the dance coach that lives near the mansion. I don't think they ever had a relationship. Right. C was Maura McTaggart. They did have a relationship, and Proteus was the son, but, but they killed Proteus's father early on in the X-Men, and so I'm pretty sure that's not it. If it's the White Queen, it was well after my time. In my time, she was still a villain. She was not a member of the X-Men. She was still a Hellfire Club member. Oh, I don't know. I have no idea. I'm going to defer to Chris. Chris, help me out. Lifeline, but You know, th- there there was a revelation of a child between Xavier and Lalandra, but that was way, way, way after this. If we have to pick from these... I'd have to guess Maura McTaggart. I'd have that to guess. That is correct. According okay. to Wizard, it was Maura, but nobody seems to know who, how. Because <laughs> yeah, I, I know remember. it wasn't Stevie. I know it wasn't Emma. It was Mutant X, Mutant X, but it was Proteus, and he ends up taking over his father. And but they, isn't that, uh, yeah, isn't that, what's his face, McTag- Joseph McTaggart's kid? That's right. That's right. That's, I that's, thought I don't so. Know. I don't know. That's a weird question. This could be some false research by Wizard. It's very possible. Because a lot Wouldn't of people think that Legion is Mora's son, but Legion's Gabriel Holder's son. Yeah, and then Legion becomes Charles Xavier's son in the movie. Well, he's he is Charles's son, but it's with Gabriel Holler, not yeah. Maura McTaggart. I, but I think a lot of people kind of conflate the two. Maybe that's what this is. Well, uh, I guess we're going to have to defer to... Garib. Was Legion around at this time, too? Legion? Legion? Yeah. He was from yeah, the Legion was on the Murray Island uh, saga. He he was one of the mutants that was under the Mora McTaggart's care at the time in the late 80s, early 90s. All right, Michael. Number four. Colossus snapped the neck of this Marauder. Vertigo, Riptide, Gunslinger, or Malice? All right, if Chris doesn't know, I know. I'll help him out. Okay, I know it wasn't Vertigo or Malice, and I don't know that Gunslinger's a real character. So, uh, Riptide? <laughs> That is correct. That is correct. In fact, he broke his neck, and then it was before it was revealed that Mr. Sinister was making clones. Clones. And they, yeah. they encountered Riptide again, and he's like, hey, I killed you. you know. And it was one of the first times that Colossus was shown being dark, that he was being serious because it was during the Mutant Mar- Massacre, and the Marauders are killing everyone. And he comes up behind him, and he just breaks the guy's neck with no feeling at all. And then he's really sh- shocked to show up again and see him again Interesting. so you know what's funny about a lot of the x-men or mutant character names they could literally be substituted in for like american gladiators character names as well <laughs> oh, yeah. nitro yeah. laser and blazer oh, yeah. <laughs> and also the guy that took a nightcrawler out with his spinning blades and he was so injured that he ended up going to Muir Island and being there with Kitty Pride and Colossus when the X-Men were killed in Dallas. And he thought the X-Men were dead. That's why he joined Excalibur. All right, Jeff, here we go. Number five, the mutant Psyche later changed her name to A, Simon, B, Frenzy, C, Skids, or D, Mirage. Well, Mirage is one of the new mutants. This is after my time. I'd have to defer to Chris. Psych is uh, Danny Moonstar, who is also Mirage. Oh, okay. That is correct. Okay, okay. Okay, Chris, here you go. Hmm. Number six. Which mutant has the ability to mimic any sound he or she hears? Mm -hmm. A, Banshee, B, Siren, C, Cerise, and D, Kylon. 
I only know this because I'm reading Excalibur. It is, uh, I believe, the main man whose action figure dances if you squeeze his legs, Kylan. <laughs> <laughs> the first two are father and daughter. And they can make noises. I don't know that they can mimic. D is correct. Good job. Wow. Impressive. I never even heard of that character. Look at that. He has an action figure. <laughs> yeah, I, re- I remember seeing him on the shelves. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jeff, here we go. Cable's real name is... Nathan Charles Christopher Summers. Right, they want, at this time, his future <laughs> name also. It was Cable, I guess. Nathan Dayspring Escaniason. Oh, man. that's That would be after my time also. I mean, I knew that... <laughs> He's Nathan Summers. I knew he's Cyclops' son. In the chronology that I was reading, his his full name was like Nathan Charles Christopher. You know, just, yeah, it was it was named after their fathers. After their, I see their, the father figures. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Christopher yeah. from so, the Star Jammers. I don't think they did the whole Summers thing as of this was 1993. So mm-hmm. it was that whole day spring weirdness. Yeah, yeah I mean, I would I would have been out before that. That was yeah after your time. And agenda would probably be the last thing that I remember. Okay, number eight. This is for Chris. Ilyana was trapped in this creature's realm for many years. Mephisto, Blackheart, Belasco, or Nightmare? Belasco. That is right. That That was one of my very first Chris Claremont era books that I found with a really crumpled cover in a dollar bin back in like 1993. (laughs) It was Uncanny 160-ish. Had a giant hand on it. Amazing (laughs) you guys remember this stuff. Unbelievable. All right, Jeff, number nine. Which mutant or mutants has the ability to possess other people's minds? A, the living pharaoh. B, Eric the Red. C, Sauron. Or D, both B and C. Well, Eric the Red originally was a a code name for Cyclops. He ended up being his own villain later on, but... Sauron had mesmerism powers and could he caused like Wolverine to attack the X-Men in the Savage Land. And what was the first one? The Living Pharaoh. The Living Pharaoh. That sounds like Farouk Farad or whatever his name was. The He was Charles Xavier's nemesis. He was the... Not the Shadow King. This is, uh, this is the one that hung around with Havoc when he was graduating college. Oh, yeah. Back so this in is, the yeah. early, early days. Let's see. I, I don't know. I would, I would have to say this has got to be Saur- Sauron. Correct. All right, this will be the last one here, Michael. So round us out with Ted. All right. The Beast was originally A, a normal-looking guy with big hands and feet. B, (laughs) a normal-looking guy with big feet and blue hair. C, a huge blue furried ape. Or D, a midget with big feet, kind of like a hobbit. (laughs) <laughs> the first one. That's <laughs> right. Yes. What? I'm surprised that they didn't put in there gray because when he first became the the furry beast, he was gray. Yep. Wow. Yeah. Was he really gray? I didn't know. In Amazing Adventures, uh, yeah. by what's his face, Anglehot. Wow. Well, we we appreciate the spirit of fair play and you guys helping each other out with those questions. You certainly proved your mettle. Your two minds together are formidable. So thank you, gentlemen. Thank you so much. The last thing that I, I want to bring up here is there is some comedy that they throw onto the back page. Wizard always wants to leave you with a laugh, you know? So here are a few of 
the things here. I think we'll all take turns reading one of these. And they ask, would you really want an X-Man living next door to you? Think it would be cool to be an X-Man or even live near those wacky mutants? Think again. Listed below are a couple of the inconveniences that the X-Neighbors have to put up with. Unexpected sonic booms from hip-looking local aircraft uh, led to pants crapping. (laughs) 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 Oh, God. Now, uh, next, disheveled Morlocks always coming over to use the bathroom and never, ever flush when they're finished. (laughs) Cable installation is never what you expect it to be. Yeah, a little after I was there. Uh, the bald dude in a floating chair always gives the meanest looks when you're making wisecracks at him, even when you're just thinking them. I see. Those sentinel robot guys don't give a hoot where they step. 27 gazebos trashed so far. <laughs> The weather is just so gosh darn unpredictable. <laughs> got a weather witch in the attic, you know? She's got to water her plants. Yeah. Alien spacecrafts buzzing overhead, screwing up your TV reception. <laughs> With the X-Mansion exploding every month or so, property values are way down. I got something to say about that. There was a time when the, when the mansion was destroyed and the New Mutants and the X-Men and the X-Force were all trying to live in the underground section of it with the rubble on top, and there was only one bathroom, and that was the cause of them splitting up their separate ways. There was only one bathroom. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, and the last one says, disarm and disable security device at front door makes trick-or-treating a nightmare. (laughs) hey that's some x humor for you folks they did that idea on a a comedy special called obnoxio the clown versus the x-men and charles xavier hires a clown for kitty pride's birthday party i think it's her 14th birthday party creepy and the clown shows up at the door and immediately falls down a pit trap and is is in his trap (laughs) and he's trying to fight his way out of the x-men's defenses and he's the hired help. He's the clown wow. from uh, Crazy Magazine, the Marvel uh, humor mag. In the uh... Yeah, I have always been curious to know more about Obnoxio, because I've seen the covers, and I'm always like, what is he about? And there's actually a one-time-only mutant involved in that issue called Ice Cream, who could change into any flavor of ice cream he desires. <laughs> he melts himself and go underneath mm-hmm. the door. He, that is his only appearance. Just like the uh, that X-Men at the Dallas State Fair has, a, has another one and done in Ekis. Yeah, so the ice cream one is now the CEO of Baskin Robbins, is what you're saying? I hope so. He just produces the flavors. Okay, great. Good to know. All right. And as we close, the last thing here, they have a list of four suggested rejected slogans for Wolverine. So we are each going to do our best Wolverine impression, the voice we hear when we read the comics. And we're going to take our turns sharing these. So why don't you kick us off, Jeff? Hey, bub, you finished with that sandwich? (laughs) Chris? Mind if I mock this room with my scent, mate? Follow <laughs> <laughs> up, Dingo. I can't see. Is that a rash? <laughs> That's Christopher Nolan's version. That's Christopher Nolan's version. <laughs> 
And finally, the last rejected slogan for Wolverine, Man, am I chafed! Hey! Well, guys, this was certainly a more pleasurable experience than what that Wolverine was dealing with this. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Chris, so much for joining us. Oh, man, we couldn't have done it without you. So much knowledge to share. So, Jeff, if people want to talk to you a little bit more and pick your brain on social media, where can they find you? Find me at nlogan77 uh, on Twitter. Um, I also did a series of Wolverine articles uh, based on what we knew and when did we know it, a reader's perspective of Wolverine at RetroDays.org. This first 30 years, if if you look at the X-Men history, either Wikipedia or the Marvel page, this first 30 years is like two paragraphs. The rest of it, it will be, you know, several pages worth. So it's kind of sad. Maybe they don't really know what happened in these first 30 years. You are definitely the source that people can go to, especially when it comes to Wolverine. So that is awesome. How about you, Chris? Where can the people find you online? Oh, you can find me a bunch of places. Right now, I'm putting out an almost daily show that I'm calling X-Lapsed, because in 2016, the X-Books were probably the worst they've ever been in my lifetime. So I ran away and uh, didn't think I was ever going to look back until I heard a lot of good things about this uh, Hox, Pox, Doc, Sox, Tox run that we are currently in. And so I decided to come back and I ordered all the books as they were coming out, but they just grew. They just sat a pile, just grew to be several feet tall because, I mean, we're all content creators. We know that uh, it's hard to really dedicate the time to do things for pleasure. You have to kind of multitask with uh, what we do in our hobby. So I decided I needed to make a show out of reading these books and becoming un-X-lapsed. So every single day, for the most part, I'm putting out an episode covering one of these books from the post-Hox-Pox, Doc-Sox-Tox era of uh, Jonathan Hickman X-Men. Right now, I'm up to episode, boy, I think, uh, I don't know when this episode is coming out, so I'll say around 90. And it's been a really good time. Well-received, and uh, a lot of people seem to be enjoying my hot takes and guesses as to what we're actually getting ourselves into. I also do other X-Lapsed-related shows. Uh, Right now I'm doing Phoenix Resurrects Lapsed, which is a look at the Phoenix Resurrection miniseries. Um, I'm also putting out segments of From Claremont to Claremont. That was once a huge... Adam knows very well what it was. It was a 14 or 15-hour program that would come out allegedly once a month, but uh, that all kind of fell off the rails. So I'm putting out segments now with uh, hopes to combine them later on down the line. Uh, if anybody, if this sounds interesting to anybody, well, first, you know, God help you. And second, you can find it at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. You can find my writings and whatnot at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. And you can find me on Twitter should you want to uh, hear more of me at uh, Ace Comics. Thank you. And uh, we hope that you've been enjoying the Wizards content that we're bringing to you. And of course, this next year has a lot more to come. But Michael, tell the people how they can stay in contact with us. So you can find us on Instagram at Wizards underscore comics on Twitter at Wizards Comics. Also find us on YouTube at Wizards Podcast. You can go check out our T Public store and get some cool merch. We got hats and t-shirts and I'm ordering myself a hoodie as my like Christmas present for myself. So there's a lot of cool content. We got all kinds of cool videos and great stuff to check out. Tweet at us, let us know what you're interested in. We'll talk about it and we'll discuss it on here or our mini episodes or on YouTube. And until next time, in the famous words of Scott Cyclops Summers, that's it. That's his famous words? That's his famous words. <laughs> According to that watch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.